And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Matthew, the ninth chapter, verses 11 through 13. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Today's gospel reading starts with the quick narrative of how St. Matthew the evangelist and apostle came to be a follower of Jesus. The call of St. Matthew, like the calling of Peter, James, and John, is marked out specially in Holy Scripture because these men are among those least likely to have given up a trade to follow a rabbi. St. Matthew, a tax collector, would have been unwelcome in the home of any Pharisee, and would have been seen as a collaborator with Gentiles and a traitor to his people. Peter and the sons of Zebedee, as fishermen, were tradesmen, who would, who would have been unlikely to be able to afford the time away from their trade to follow a rabbi. The lesson immediately follows the account of the healing of the paralytic, saying that Jesus encounters Matthew as he went on from there, that is, from the place where he performed the miracle. St. Thomas Aquinas points out this connection, saying that St. Matthew purposefully places his conversion here in the narrative of the Gospel to call out that his very submission to Christ was a miracle just as notable as making a paralyzed man walk. We follow Jesus along with Matthew as he enters the house to recline at table for the meal, and here Matthew's call and conversion is cast as part of the greater miracle that is, many whom the religious establishment have cast off as sinners are experiencing the Son of God in their midst. They, of course, do not know that Jesus is the Son of God, yet they clearly know that he is different from the other rabbis who have written them off with the Gentiles and the unrighteous. Some of the followers of these rabbis approach Jesus' disciples in consternation and scandal over the fact that he is associating with the dregs of first century Judean society. Jesus answers their question by forcing them to question their notions of righteousness. What is the meaning behind God's relationship with his people? And what is the true purpose of the law? One of the details of Jesus' ministry on earth that quickly stands out to students of scripture is that it seems to be at odds constantly with the way the Pharisees do things. Worship in the first, in first century Judea was divided between the temple, overseen by the priests and officials in the synagogue worship, which, led to the, which was led by the scribes and Pharisees, the teachers of the law. The idea of a traveling teacher was not unusual. Someone who went from place to place and gathered followers dedicated to the teacher's particular expression of following the law. This is what the Pharisees believed Jesus to be, their consternation at how he conducts his disciples arises from the fact that he doesn't fit the mold of an itinerant preacher, but he clearly isn't in league with the temple officials. Instead of collecting scholars and the cream of the crop of the synagogues, he gains followers from the lower classes, such as the fishermen like Peter, James, and John, or from the politically reviled such as the tax collectors, or outright sinners such as women caught in adultery, or people previously oppressed by demons, which the prevailing wisdom presumed must have meant they were guilty of great offense. The conflict we see evident in today's lesson, which we see again and again in the Gospels, 
is that Jesus and the Pharisees have a very different view of what makes someone worthy to be a disciple. For the Pharisees, a worthy disciple was a diligent student of the law, free of any public stain such as notorious sin or entanglement with Gentiles. By this measure, Peter and the sons of Zebedee were disqualified for their presumed lack of education, and Matthew for his being a tax collector, a collaborator with Rome, and assumed to be extorting his fellow Jews. However, Jesus sees the hearts of human beings. Where the Pharisees see unworthy wretches not worth their time, Jesus sees those who are worthily unworthy. They know they are sinners. They are not blinded by the illusion of their own righteousness. And they know they need saving. Only those who know their unworthiness can call out to God for salvation. The central point of the Gospel reading is the question of, who needs Jesus? The Pharisees, by prioritizing an appearance of righteousness and shunning any exterior indications of unworthiness, indicate with their attitudes and their behaviors that they already see themselves as worthy and so don't need a savior. In responding to their questions about why Jesus doesn't collect the best and brightest of the synagogue, instead associating with those who account themselves as sinners and outcasts, Jesus responds that the people who know they are in need of saving are exactly the people he's looking for. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Of course, we know that even the most outwardly righteous person is still internally sick with sin, and at that level of knowledge, we also know that Jesus is not saying he didn't come to help the Pharisees, since he knows the hearts of all humanity. However, there is an element of sickness where the sick person isn't ready to admit they are sick. We've all been there, I think. A cough that lingers longer than a normal cold. A pain that won't go away. Some nagging symptom that over time we learn to live with. Maybe we go to the doctor after months or years of dealing with it and finally ask for help. During that time where we are managing on our own, we don't usually account ourselves as sick, at least not in my personal experience. When I first started having panic attacks, I convinced myself it was episodic, and I was managing them. I didn't need any help from doctors or pharmacists or whoever. It wasn't until I saw that what was going on was very hurtful that I could ask for help and get the appropriate treatment. So Jesus came for those who are sick, which is all of us. But he doesn't force himself on patients who deceive themselves into believing they are managing their sickness. He is ready and waiting for those who acknowledge that they are sick in their souls and look to him for help and relief from their pains. Ultimately, this is why Jesus associates with the tax collectors and sinners, because they know in their very soul that they are unworthy of the love of God. But note also that it isn't that Jesus associates exclusively with tax collectors and sinners, or that he associates with all tax collectors and sinners. He associates with all who acknowledge that they seek more than satisfaction on the earth and who come to him seeking that fulfillment. This is the error that the world and many well-meaning Christians make. They see Jesus eating and drinking with those who are rejected by society for their lifestyles, and take the lesson that sinfulness doesn't matter, or that persecution for personal choice is a mark of holiness. Yet as we have seen, those who don't acknowledge they are sick don't come to the physician for healing and are unable to benefit from his medicines. 
This isn't to say that Jesus doesn't love someone in a promiscuous lifestyle, or who rejects church teaching about self-denial, or even someone who flat-out rejects his call on their life. Jesus died for them as well. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. However, until sin and error are acknowledged and repented of, it is like a person with an ever-growing cancer who is unaware of the danger and peril they are in. This brings us to Jesus' statement that closes out this episode. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The sins of ancient Israel were exemplified by outward keeping of the sacrificial system, but hardness of heart towards their neighbors, their fellow brothers and sisters in Israel. The neglect and abuse of the downtrodden and outcast was papered over with adherence to the ceremonies in the temple. Jesus is equating the sinful tendency to the Pharisees and their treatment of fellow Jews. Those most in need of hope and help from the teachers of Israel were those who were most shunned by those same teachers. The better part is to show mercy to those who are seeking, even in a faltering way, to those who are impacted by the fallen nature of the world and have to make difficult choices along the path to eternal life. The call is to show mercy and not to continually knock them down. No one has gained friends, true friends, by beating them down at the slightest mistake. But brothers and sisters are gained through love shown in mercy and forbearance. How do we do this in our lives today? As I'm sure we are all aware, the world around us is celebrating Pride Month. This is a celebration that we ought not and will not be participating in as Christians following the traditions of the church. And yet, we are presented with an opportunity to practice the mercy that Jesus calls us to. Many people identifying as LGBTQ have been told they shouldn't exist as people, have been made to feel like they are lesser than people who do not experience same-sex attraction and have faced shunning and rejection from family and friends while they were early in adulthood or even younger. The rates of suicidality in this population, along with depression, anxiety, and other mental health issues typically arising from traumatic experiences is high, especially among youth. None of this is a reason for us to suddenly stop believing the overwhelming testimony of Scripture, which is that God does care about our sexuality, and desires that sex should, would be between one man and one woman in marriage for life. It is a reason to examine how we relate to people who experience same-sex attraction, or for various reasons find themselves in a lifestyle the church does not support. In opposing the celebration of Pride Month and the affirmation of sin, we must consider how to provide something different. As I stated earlier, Many of the people in our communities who celebrate pride do so because they feel abandoned and forced out of loving communities. I believe a start is changing how we interact with Christians who identify that they are same-sex attracted. There are fellow Anglicans in the ACNA and other Christians and other denominations doctrinally aligned with us who have revealed that they experience these attractions. They have also identified that they strive to uphold a traditional sexual ethic, which means in their case that they are committed to lifelong celibacy, since scripture identifies that acting on their attractions is sinful. 
Unfortunately, often these brothers and sisters in Christ report that they are met with suspicion, distrust, and extra scrutiny into the possibility of their giving into temptation. The fact of this kind of interaction and lack of Christian love towards fellow siblings in Christ because they have spoken about this aspects of their lives is a stumbling block. It raises the question of if same-sex attracted Christians are regarded as a scandal by their churches regardless of their self-denial, why should a non-Christian with the same struggles come near a church at all? To my knowledge, there is no one among us who struggles with these attractions. But if there were, they would be welcome to the same opportunities to receive grace from the church as all of us. Walking in loving community, receiving pastoral care, and receiving the sacrament, having confessed sin, and made earnest repentance and amendment of life. Having said that, we all know people outside of this parish. I have friends and acquaintances that have same-sex attractions who the world would call LGBTQ. Some of them have in the past identified as Christian, and some still strive towards Christ. Not all uphold the traditional sexual ethic, but I believe that through God there is hope and all things are possible. I also have friends who once identified as Christian and still profess Christ with their lips, but who have slid further and further into error because they saw no alternative to the community that professes pride. As far as practical exercises and admonitions go, Let us start with leaving behind vile and discouraging speech. Let us not repeat or participate in jokes at LGBTQ people's expense. Let our lips not pass slurs or insults, even in private. If we know a person, a co-worker, friend, or family member in our life who self-identifies as LGBTQ, let's focus on loving the rest of who they are and not focus on what the world wants them and us to focus on, what makes them different from us. By all means, answer honestly, but lovingly, if the matter comes up, but otherwise regard them simply as another person God created who experiences temptation and sin in a different way than you or I do. I'm very far from having all of the answers to this. It is one of the hard questions the church is presented with in this age. All I know is that it starts with love and mercy. Love is neither the utter rejection of the person struggling with temptation, nor is it the uncritical acceptance of all viewpoints and lifestyles. Love is recognizing that we all sin and have an advocate with the Father. Mercy in our case is recognizing that though we may be righteous in this regard, we have our own unrighteousness, and therefore we are alongside and ushering along those accounted as sinners coming to the physician for healing. May we be a people who help others find their way to the great physician, so that we all may experience his healing mercies. Amen.